Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 tonight. We're going to try to do all 10 verses. It doesn't sound like much, but it's always more than you think. <laughs> and I always get disappointed when I don't get to the end. I run out of time, and that's usually what happens. So I'll give you a second to find it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. One of my favorite books, Ephesians, um, the first two chapters are pretty much all about who we are in Christ and the blessings that Christ has bestowed on us. It's just oh, so fantastic. So if there's any of those days you just kind of feel down and out a little bit, pick up your Bible, look at the first two chapters in Ephesians 2, or first couple chapters in Ephesians, and you'll just be blessed. You, you can't help but be blessed after you read those two chapters. Anyway, I'll start reading. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. To me, this is just a phenomenal passage, because Paul is careful to show us um, the way of the world. The way of the world is out there. You know, he's showing us in the first couple verses, you know, how we used to be dead in our sins and trespasses. And that then how that um, we all at one time, no matter who you are, lived among those people that were dead. We were dead. Dead in our sins and trespasses. And he talks about how Christ, our God, in his great love and mercy came to us and saved us. Not because we were worth saving. Raise your hand if you're worth saving. I don't see any hands. I wasn't worth saving. There was nothing in me that was worth saving. It's all because of God's love and his mercy and his grace. To me, that's just so phenomenal. And uh, 
So we'll get into it. That's just like a thumbnail sketch of, you know, how awesome this passage is and how much I love it. Starting out with verse 1, you were dead. The spirit and soul of man was the part of us that was dead. Obviously, our flesh was alive because that's what we tended to pleasure and to, to focus on our flesh, our fleshly desires, the lust of the flesh, the, the cravings of the flesh. We wanted those fulfilled. So we went our own way, like lost sheep without a shepherd, not knowing anything about a God who loved us. And if we had heard about a God who loved us, we just kind of, eh, not ready yet. I want to do what I want to do for a while. And, you know, when the time's right, I'll, I'll think about coming to Christ. And, oh, maybe I won't. I, I don't know. I don't even know if I believe in God. You know, you know how people think. I used to work with this one lady at the Bar Harbor Inn when I did night security. And I'd have to lock up the bar every night. And I hated that part of my job. And I'd have to lock up the, the room in the basement where all the liquor was stored, where all the wine and hard liquor and beer and all that stuff. And um, she had to do a quick inventory before I locked it up. So while she was doing her inventory, I'd be talking to her about the Lord. And she just had no interest. She goes, if God is a God of love, then... If I just do enough good things to outweigh the bad things I do, then he'll accept me. And I just try to convey to her, that's not the point. That's not the point at all. We can't do anything good enough to earn our way to heaven. It's a gift, a free gift. And to try to explain that to some people, you would think you're just, beating your head against a wall. They don't understand. The Spirit hasn't quickened their spirit yet to understand because they're still lost in their sins. I like Colossians 2.13. I don't know how quick you can pop those up. I should have given you a list. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And then it goes on to talk about how, you know, he canceled that code, the law that was against us. You know, because the law pointed to our sin. If it wasn't for the law, we wouldn't know what that sin was. But he raised us with Christ and gave us a new life. Trespasses here means lapses or, or, and sins basically means shortcomings or missing the mark. Um, we, we miss the mark still. But there is grace still. And there's abundant grace. There's an infinite amount of grace. And that's something I can't overemphasize tonight because this talks about God's wonderful grace. Um, and, and our sins and our trespasses and shortcomings and failings are just demonstration of our deadness before we met Christ. You know, because that's what we're known by. 
you know, in college. Some of the guys were known by how much they could handle when they drank and still be able to drive. It's like, that's what they wanted to be known by. Their sin. I'm not sure where they are now. I have no idea where they are now. I didn't keep up with them, follow their lives or anything, because, you know, who knows where they were going and what direction their life would have taken. But this was at a Christian college, mind you. Christian college, you know. Not everyone who goes to a Christian college is Christian. A lot of grandparents and parents push their kids into going to a, a Christian college because that's where they want them to go, thinking, oh, it's a Christian college, they'll be safe. Well, Christian colleges don't protect people. They may have rules against that stuff, and they may kick you out if you get caught violating them, but it doesn't make much difference. Anyway, he goes into verse 2. Those sins in which we previously used to live in when we followed the ways of this world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We all lived in those sins previously. And Paul's writing to Christians here. He's talking to the redeemed, those people that no longer do this and uh, or no longer are known by their sins. You know, we should be known by our love and our love only, not our sin. And if we're still known by our sin, then there's, there's something not quite right there that we need to iron out with our, with our Savior and with those that we work and live around. And his word here for live is to walk about. You know, we, we still use that kind of terminology in Christianity today. We'll ask, well, how's your walk going this week? Or... You know, are you walking good with the Lord this week? You know, we still use that kind of language, which is interesting. Um, Why it's always usually translated live, I'm not sure, but it's how we live. How we walk is how we live. He's talking about the different sources of temptation outside of the self. Talks about the ways of the world and inventing ways to sin. You know, it's it's interesting because um, I think it's in the Old Testament. God talks about, you know, how evil mankind had become and the invention of sin that they struggled with. You know what? It's it, To me, it's amazing that when God created man and woman, puts them in the garden, there was only one sin they could commit. One sin. And that was to eat of the tree of the... Um, Knowledge of good and evil. That was the only sin, the only thing that they could do against God. Now you think of how many ways of sinning that mankind has invented over the years. It's unfathomable. Look at our society that we live in and the ways that they've found to sin, the ways of this world. And it talks about the ruler of the power of the air. This is the realm of demons and the devil and other little g gods. And that's I'll leave it at that because there are little g gods out there. There's lots of them. We we invent idols in our mind. Our mind is an idol factory, especially before we're saved. We find things to to worship and to honor and to give... um, almost 
authority over our life. I remember before I seriously started serving the Lord, I got a new vehicle. And I would park it like way at the back of the lot, away from anybody else, so I wouldn't get door dings. That truck could have easily been an idol. It was an idol. I was so protective of that thing. And before I knew it, the door dings weren't the issue. It was the rust. Rust started coming out. And it's like, oh, I did all of this to protect it from door dings, but now I've got rust. And then after rust came out, a big buck came out. And once I hit the big buck, you know, the idol was dead. You know, it was just like, what was this thing that I put so much time and effort to, to keep it washed, to keep it looking good, to keep it cleaned out? And, you know, that's what our idols are like, though. You know, we put so much power and credence into certain things. And it talks about the spirit now working. That's the unholy spirit. There's an unholy spirit in the world, not a person like the Holy Spirit, but there's a spirit of unholiness in our world. And if you don't believe that, just watch the news one night. I'm just watching one of those little stories that comes up on YouTube um, about a murder of a 15-year-old kid in Florida. The kid was involved in, in drug trafficking and they went to rob this lady that they'd sold a gun to. And she ended up shooting them with a gun they sold them. It's like, but a 15-year-old kid. And he had a list longer than my arm of, of crimes that he'd committed in his short life of 15 years. There's a spirit of unholiness out there. He gets to verse 3 and he goes, all of us, all of us, oops, I just lost it. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Everyone, no matter who you are, has lived a sinful life. Christians are to no longer live according to the flesh like we did when we were, before we were saved. We're supposed to put on the new man and take the old man off and discard it. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must crucify the flesh daily and take up his cross and follow me. You know, that's a doesn't sound like an attractive life. He's inviting us when he invites us to become Christians to come and die. Come and die. Come and die for a real cause that's worth dying for. You know, die to self first. And then find your ministry and put your life into it. And die having a fulfilled life of ministry. We lived according to our fleshly desires. That's any sinful thought or inclination towards sin, followed by fulfillment of that sin. You know, what a terrible way to live according to our fleshly desires. Yep, 
And as Christians, it's still easy to do. That's why I try to fast at least one day a week, because it's a way of just telling your fleshly desires, at least for food, not today. Not today. And when you can say no to something like food for a whole day, you can say no to other fleshly desires much more easily. It's like a training. That's why Jesus said, when I leave, my disciples will fast. But right now they get the bridegroom, but he's gone. So he, I believe he expects us to fast, and, and regularly, for a good purpose. We were children under wrath. That's God's wrath. You know, when you think about that, and you think about how we lived in the flesh, and that's not merely the body, but the whole man oriented away from God. The whole man, body, mind, soul, spirit, however many parts you want to divide man into. Some just go body, spirit, or body, soul, mind, or, you know, whatever. It's, that's a discussion beyond tonight's discussion. But, you know, to live according to flesh is that whole man oriented away from God. That's why when we come to God, we have to make that U-turn a change of mind and to turn our life 180 degrees from the direction we were going away from God towards God. You know, that's what he calls us to, a life of following him. And to do that, we have to crucify the flesh. And, and that last statement in that verse is, is terrifying to me. To think that we were by nature objects of wrath. You know, those people that we know out there that aren't saved are objects of God's wrath, just like we were. And if you look at John 3, 17 and 18, right after the famous verse, John 3, 16, um, it tells us what their condition is. You can probably get it faster on the computer than I can here, but for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. That's God's only requirement, is that we believe in the name of his Son. You know, that's not difficult. God made salvation so easy, and that's because he loves us with an infinite love that we cannot measure or comprehend. It's beyond comprehension. It's something we could never understand. And verse 4, I love verse 4 because it starts with the word but. Some versions may have but God depending on the order that they translated it in. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, that's four and five. I, 
they're one sentence. You know, Paul loves long sentences. And that's why I love Paul, because I always write in long sentences. <laughs> and when you think about it, where would we be without that but there? Dead in our transgressions. But God is rich in mercy and great love, infinite love, because God is an infinite being and God is love. God's mercy is infinite. There's no end to his mercy. No end to it. God loves all of mankind, saved or unsaved, because he loved us in our mess. You know, he loved us in the, the depth of our sin and, and depravity. He didn't condone our sin. Not at all. He died for our sin. So how could he ever condone sin? And, and that's where some of these modern Christian churches who are, you know, open and affirming have really gotten it so wrong. God died for us while we were a mess so that he could clean us up and give us a new life in him and to raise us up with him. You know, what a sweet thought. He doesn't want to affirm us in our mess. Could you imagine saving a pig in the mud? And it's just going to be in the mud. You haven't done anything for it. Or pulling a sheep out of a stream. Or just leaving a sheep in a stream to drown. Because sheep will drown in a stream. They get Their coat gets so saturated and they just go down. They're not swimmers. Um, God didn't intend them to be, apparently. But you know what? His mercy is overwhelmingly great. He loved us with the love which he loved us. That's the literal translation of that, um, his great love for us. He loved us with the love which he loved us with. You know, I love that, you know, literal translation. He loved us with the love that he loved us with. You know, love in that is used twice just to emphasize the, the power of that love. You know, because of God's compassion for the helpless, which we were, he gave us Christ. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, all of the world, that he gave his one and only son unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that's what he created us for everlasting life to be in fellowship with him for all eternity forever and ever and ever to be in his presence oh what a sweet thought we were made alive in Christ Christ's resurrection made possible the new life for us. When Christ was raised to newness of life from the dead, we were raised in that same power from our deadness, spiritual deadness, and raised up with Christ. When you come to Christ, you're raised up out of that muck and mire and, and the, the pig pen that you found yourself in in your sin. He gave us that new life. 
It's his resurrection power. And that leads to that led to God's wonderful grace for us. Even though we were dead in trespasses, spiritually dead because of sin, didn't matter one sin or a million sins, sin, sin. You know, we were sinners. But we were saved by grace. And I love that thought because Paul emphasized it twice in these ten short verses. We are saved by grace. It's not us. It's God's grace. Unmerited favor. We did not deserve God's grace. But it's his favor. He favored us. When you think of an infinite God favoring you, how great is that? You know, I, I can remember, you know, some of the jobs that I've had just wishing that my boss would favor me. You know, how low on the totem pole is a boss compared to God? How often have we wished to find favor from a friend or, or favor from a boss or favor from, you know, whoever it is? But God already favored us. He chose us. You are chosen. You are loved. You've been given grace and mercy and peace. The saved by grace is in the past tense. It's a retrospective act in the past. And there's no room for salvation by works. I want to read a, a kind of long passage. It's 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. And I think it fits in here quite well. Um, some of you may be scratching your head going, what's, where's that fit? How does that fit? And, and Paul is talking about, he starts out talking about sowing. And initially he's talking about money. But it goes right from there to the grace of God. He starts out, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, listen to this part, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ 
and of your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, God has given us his grace to begin with. But everything else we have is also his. We're only a steward of it. And God has entrusted us to steward that so that when we see a need and we have a surplus, we can provide for that need because of the grace God has shown us. We show grace to others. You see how that works? It just multiplies and goes forward and forward and forward. You know, the world has this saying, pay it forward. You know, someone does a good deed to you, so you do another good deed for someone else. Well, as Christians, we're to be doing good for others all the time, endlessly, always paying it forward because of the work of Christ on the cross and what he's done for us. Let's see if I can find my place in my notes again. <clears throat> Verse 6. Oops, i got to get back to Ephesians. Sorry about that. There we go. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him where? Here at Calvary Chapel down east in a brown chair. Where did he seat us? Heavenly realms, heavenly places in the heavens. We have a seat right now with him in the heavens. That should just blow our minds. And, and that's something we should be aware of every day, all day, where we're seated. Because no matter what you're doing or where you're at, you're seated in the heavenly realms. And you can feel his presence and his power in your life because you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. I wish you all could have been here to see the message we saw last night. Uh, it was a videotape of um, Tim somebody. I, I'll have to ask Oliver the name of the guy. But, you know, he was talking about how his prayer life had just become kind of routine and rote. And, you know, he found himself praying the same things all the time. And we can get into a rut like that. But then he realized God wants so much more of us in our prayer time. He wants to elevate us up into his presence so that we're face to face with him when we're in prayer. And if we only realize that, it's life transforming. Often in, in scripture, um, they use the Greek prefix pros or pros, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It just means face to face, before face-to-face, -face. and that's how God wants to encounter us every day, all day. He doesn't want us to, to get down in the dumps. He doesn't want us to be overwhelmed by 
the cares of this world and work and, and the anxieties of life. He wants us to be free from that. He wants us to be at peace and at one with him. And we can have that. We just need to appropriate it by faith. We are already seated with Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Wonderful passage. Just a few pages over. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that a powerful thing? God doesn't want our minds set on the things of this earth. You know, every time I pick up the news, it kind of is a little trap for me. Because once you get that little bit, you want the next little bit and the next little bit. But then you, at the end, you feel like, why did I do that? Why did I do that to myself? I just spent that time with my mind focused on things of this world and not the things of God, the things of heaven. And that's where he wants our mind focused. And if our minds, we can keep our minds focused on that, you know, we'll just be smiling when he comes and we'll be ready. We won't have to think about, am I going to be ready when he comes? No. If our mind is focused on him all the time and not on the things of this world, we're going to be ready anyway. So that when he appears in the clouds and calls us home, we'll just right up with him. I can't wait. <laughs> I've watched enough news to know that this world can't be long. There's not much life left to this world. Not much at all. Verse 7, and this is the reason he gives that we're seated in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know, the coming ages in the Bible refers to, to all of time and eternity hereafter. Coming ages starts with the next minute or the next second and goes for all eternity. The coming ages. And that's, he's given us Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms with him so that we can understand the immeasurable riches of his grace. Immeasurable riches of his grace. Beyond measurement. There's no bank on earth that can't count the money that's in it. They have accountants that know pretty much every penny right down to the, you know, the penny. You know, and tellers have to account for their, their drawers at the end of every day. And they can count that. It's probably a lot of money, but they can still count it. Our debt now is over $33 trillion. There's somebody out there that can count that and keep track of that. I couldn't. You you put the number a million in front of me, and my mind's blown. It's like I couldn't even imagine a million, let alone 33 trillion. But God, 
infinite grace is greater than that, greater than anything that we could ever number or count or put a value on. It's infinite. And God desires to display his grace toward man. He wants us to see his goodness and his kindness, his compassion, his love, his mercy, all of those things. He wants us to understand them and to live in them day after day after day. And all of this is displayed in Christ Jesus, who we follow, who we see through Scripture and through our time in the Word and through our time in prayer. We see Christ. We see him elevated up. The right hand of the Father. Right hand symbolizes power and authority. He has all power and authority. And we just need to to give our lives completely to him. Romans 8, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we were good people. Every one of us was an enemy of God when Christ died for us. An enemy of God. And Jesus Christ, when he came to give up his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, made peace between us and the Father. And now we have peace with God through that. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Verse 9. Not by work so that no one can boast. You know, I love the thought. Again, Paul emphasized the fact that we are saved by grace. No other way, saved by grace. We owe our salvation entirely to the undeserved favor of God. Entirely. I was talking last night after the presentation, and one of the brothers said, you know, shortly after I was saved, I started to think, you know, well, I I understand why God saved me now, because I'm you know, eager to learn his word and eager to, you know, eager to, you know, share the gospel. And, you know, that's why God saved me, because, you know, basically I'm, I'm just such a great person now. <laughs> but then he grew out of that very quickly. You know, a few conversations with Will later, you know, he realized that's, that's a really stupid way to think. There was nothing in me that was worthy of saving. But God saved me. Put his Holy Spirit in us. Put his self, himself, in us. I think I'm from the South. (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, such an awesome thing, and it's grace through faith. Faith is a a great word in the New Testament because it's either translated faith or belief, depending on the context. It's the same word. It's I don't usually like to throw out Greek words, but it's pistuo. It's a verb, Uh, and pistos is would be like the noun form of it. But 
It's faith and belief. But in Greek, it means a trustful response. In other words, it's when we invest our full faith and trust in God. It's not something that we can manufacture or dream up. It's also a gift from God. Faith is a gift. God has given us, each of us, a portion of faith. And that, I've got a passage for that, but um, I don't, well, no, we don't have time. We do have time, right? Oh, sweet. we got a half an hour. I'll finish through verse 10, and we might get out early. <laughs> Praise God. But once, once you, you've fully placed your faith and trust in Christ, he saves us. You know, not by any work we did. Not by any work at all. And so many people think they'll use the the English like definition for for believe. You know, we we throw the word believe around like it's um, a piece of trash. You know, like I believe in Santa, or I believe in the Easter Bunny, or you know, I believe it's going to rain today, or um, you know. I believe someone's going to attack me or, you know, we could, whatever it is that we use for that, that word, we just kind of throw it around like it's, it's trash. But it, in Greek, it doesn't mean that at all. It's when we invest our full faith and trust in someone greater than us, like God. You know, faith is a direct outcome of hearing the saving message. Romans 10, 17. This is a very common passage. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. You know, our faith comes from hearing the word. It's a gift of God again, like grace. You know, Rome, we may as well do Romans 12.3 while we're right there. Because, you know, who knows when we'll get back there. Well, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I love that verse because sometimes we can like pat ourselves on the, the shoulder too hard so that we kind of rattle our brain and numb ourselves or something. I don't know what happens when we do that, but how stupid. You know, we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It makes it plain, but to, to measure or judge yourself in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. God that gives us the faith. It's, it's not me that I can't work up faith to do something. I can't work up faith to, to heal someone. I can't work up faith to produce a miracle. That faith that does those works is a gift of God. It's not something I can do at all. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, 
and he's going through the gifts of the Spirit. And now this is a different kind of faith here. Um, the other kind of faith that we've been talking about is primarily saving faith, the faith that we are given so that we can come to Christ to be saved. This is the kind of faith that does um, is used in the performance of miracles and stuff. And he's going through the, the, the gifts of the Spirit in, in chapter 12 here. In verse 9, to another faith. So faith here is an extraordinary amount of faith that God has given us beyond the initial measure of faith that we've been given when we believed. It's one of the, the spiritual gifts. And we're to desire those spiritual gifts. The Bible tells us in, in chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 14 to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. So we're to desire those gifts. And he outlines all of them in, in 12 through 13. 13 is the love chapter. Put in the very middle because we need that love chapter in the middle. Otherwise, those gifts would make us proud and boastful. But he tells us what true love is in the middle of that, what kind of love God has for us. This faith is not from ourselves. We can't generate a way to be saved. There's no amount of good works. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of money given. I think some of these billionaires in our world today give a lot of their money charitably, um, first of all, what do you do with billions of dollars? <laughs> you can't possibly spend it in your lifetime. How many mansions do you need in, in how many countries or states? Or You know, you can't possibly spend that. So a lot of them give it away, but I think they give it away with the intent of trying to ensure that they're pleasing God in some way or ensuring a, a spot in heaven. So that when they get to God in the judgment, they say, well, God, didn't I provide all these vaccines for Africa? Or didn't I do this? Or didn't I do that? And, and Jesus will say, no, I never knew you. I never knew you. You might have done good deeds, but you didn't have saving faith. And you didn't accept my grace. And you didn't honor my son. Salvation is a gift. It's free. If I give you a gift, you can choose to accept it or reject it. It's a gift. It's out there. I could be holding a million dollars in my hand. Anyone want this million dollars? Just come up here and take it. Please take it, you know. Oh, come on up. Take it. You have the choice to accept it. Or you have the choice to reject it. And God gave us a free will to either accept his love or reject his love. In verse 9, it's not by works, not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You know, if I could work up my own salvation... I'd have something to boast in, wouldn't I? If I could say, well, I did this, 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 and now God has saved me because I did this, 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 and this. I could boast about that. But that's not how it works with God at all. 
nothing we do will ever earn his favor because his favor, his grace is free. I can't earn his favor. There's no way. And that's where all of these cults come into to view. Look how many of these cults have to do works to be saved. Mormonism is one of the biggest cults that you have to do works to be saved. They say that you're saved by grace once you've done all that you can. Once you've done all that you can. Thankfully, God doesn't work that way. Because how do you know that you've done all that you can? You know, how, how would you ever measure that? It's pretty presumptive for them to say, well, I've done all that I can do, and now God saved me. What a crazy way. Well, it's not a way. It's not a way at all. Those people are condemned to hell because they reject the true Christ, unfortunately. But look how many other cults. You know, I don't want to, you know, pin Catholics as a cult, but they're very works-oriented, very works-oriented, unfortunately. But we did sing a song by a Catholic tonight, so i got to be careful what I say. <laughs> Matt Marr, he's a Catholic, unapologetic Catholic. But I do believe he's saved because he writes some of the best worship music out there. But anyway, digression. Um, you know, no one can boast because they, they can earn God's grace or earn salvation. No one can boast because of that. God has made sure that no one can boast about that. Because in our human flesh, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's in Hebrews. You know, we're told, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if we don't have faith, we can't please God. But he's given us the faith as believers so that we can. You know, that's the only way we can please God. I can't do anything to earn his love. And I can't do anything to make him love me more than he already does. And the best thing is I can't do anything to make him love me less. What a wonderful thought. His love is so great for us. In verse 10, we'll finish here. We're getting pretty close anyway. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love this, this part, this verse, um, for several reasons. He talks about where his workmanship. The Greek word for workmanship is poemia. What does that sound like? Poem. A artistic piece of literature. Where his workmanship, where his masterpiece, or his work of art, every one of us is his masterpiece or work of art. 
not because of us, but because of the work that he's done in us. When we see each other, we should be thinking, he's a masterpiece, or she's a masterpiece. She's a trophy of God's love, or he's a trophy of God's love. That's what we are. And I can't emphasize not because of ourselves enough. Our salvation is because of Christ's work. It includes us becoming a new creation. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We're recreated in Christ Jesus. We are a new man. Um, Corinthians says when we become saved, we become a new man. The old is gone. The new has come. I love that thought. We're no longer the old man that we used to be. Um, and I'm using man generically if you're a lady in here. <laughs> we don't believe in trans rights here. <laughs> Sorry. Mankind, yes. Yep. Right. Yep. We're recreated in Christ Jesus. We're a new creation. We're his recreated masterpiece. He took our mess and turned it into a masterpiece. He took our sin and disgusting grossness and depravity and, and moral failings and everything else and made it into a beautiful masterpiece. And he did this so that we could do the good works that he's called us to do. You know, works before salvation are meaningless, but works after salvation are an evidence of the work of God in our lives. We become more compassionate, more loving, more grace-giving, more forgiving, more of what Christ was like. You know, when Jesus came across the, the woman caught in adultery and all those people were surrounding her, ready, ready to stone her, and they asked Jesus, well, what should we do? Or what does the law say? And they were trying to trap him. So instead of going in there and making a big scene, Jesus just knelt. He started writing in the dirt. And I don't know what he wrote. I could just imagine there's been lots of people that thought they knew what he wrote, but, you know, I'm not in that camp because we're not told what he wrote. But we're told that one at a time, starting with the oldest, they walked away. They dropped their stones and walked away. And Jesus had told them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus had loving compassion on a a wicked woman. And that's the kind of compassion we need to have in our lives. We need to look at the lost with the same compassion that Jesus looked at the lost with, and that's the good works he prepared in advance for us to do. It's his good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. 
which includes sharing the gospel, sharing our resources, going out into the public and, and sharing Christ with our neighbors and our loved ones and, and sharing the love of God with the cashier that may be having a bad day or, or you know, the, the dump man or whoever we comes across in our lives during the day. Just share the love of Christ by being the love of Christ. You know, sometimes we don't need words. We just need to be compassionate and loving people and forgiving and, and giving people room to grow like God has given us room to grow. You know, I couldn't imagine um, probably 40 years ago if I were to, to teach, I probably would have been fairly condemning and, you know, pointing the finger and, you know, but God has done a work in changing me as I age and get older. I'm much more compassionate than I used to be. I'm not going to be the grumpy old man I thought I'd grow up to be. I thought my ideal, you know, situation would be a grumpy old man and have two beautiful apple trees in my front yard and to throw rocks at kids as they come up to try to steal an apple. <laughs> you know, throw rocks out the window or from around the corner of the house. You know, I'm not going to be that person, thankfully. I'll probably go out, if I ever have a, a house with two apple trees in the front yard, I'll probably go out and help the kids pick some. Here, enjoy an apple, because Jesus provided these apples for me. You know, just share the love. You don't have to share a lot of words. Just be compassionate. James 2, 14 through 26. I know that's a long passage but it's worth it. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Words alone, sometimes they're just meaningless. They need to be backed by action. And that's what God has called us to do. Good deeds. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith. And another will say, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. See, that's how we're to be as Christians. We're to demonstrate our faith by what we do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Our faith is completed by our actions, by what we do by how we love, by how we give, how we care. That's how our faith is completed. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We can't say that we believe in God if we have no deeds to back that up. That's what James is saying here. Those deeds don't save us. They can't save us. They could never save us. That's made clear by Paul in Ephesians. It's, but it's those deeds that are the evidence of a work of Christ in our lives. And those deeds are just simple kindness, sharing of resources, giving to the poor, Whatever it is that God has called you to do, or whatever need you see that you can fulfill, whether it's just giving someone who's having a bad day a good embrace, one that's meaningful and powerful, as simple as that. Sharing our love that Christ has planted in our hearts for others. God has made this so simple. And I think sometimes we make it so complex and hard to, to believe and hard to be a part of, but that's not the way God intended it. He knew we were just simple man, and he needed to have a simple way to save us. And that's what he's done for us. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just love you. How could we not help but love you, Lord? How could we not help but just marvel about your works and the deeds that you've done for us and your saving grace that you've bestowed upon us, Lord? Help us to be able to demonstrate that same kind of love and grace to everyone we encounter, Lord. Help us to share your love that you gave us, Lord. We need to do that as evidence of our faith and trust in you, Lord, and, and to help us to be more active in our, our deeds, Lord, and, and the doing of our faith and not just the speaking of our faith, Lord. Father, help us to be always careful to give you all the glory and all the praise for anything that's accomplished because of the love that you've placed in us and the love we share with others. And we glorify your name tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.